0: I'd like to thank everybody, and I think we'll get started. It's nice to welcome Michael Desch back to the Mershon Center. It's been way too long. He was reminding me this morning that the last time he was here was when we were in the building on 199 uh, 10th Street. I suspect very few of you in the room uh, had that experience. Uh, I certainly did. Maybe Randy, maybe the only one uh, old enough uh, to remember that. So. It's been my uh, uh, mistake not to have Michael back earlier, but I made sure he was on the agenda this year. Uh, Michael Desch has his Ph.D. from the University of Chicago. He has been assistant director of the Olin Institute for, for well, six, six years, I think, in the 1993 to 98. He then uh, moved to the University of Kentucky, where he was the director of the Patterson School of Diplomacy and International Commerce. And... Just two years ago, this is his second year now. He became the first holder of the Robert M. Gates Chair in Intelligence and National Security Decision Making at the George Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M. And today, he's going to talk about a paper he's recently written called "America's Ill America's Liberal Ill Liberalism." <laughs> and without further ado, Mike, welcome back to Response. Thank to you have very you much.
1: Uh, great to be here. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate the uh, invitation to come back, not only to see what's happened to Columbus and to Ohio State over the uh, ensuing 15 years, but uh, also to see a lot of old friends and uh, people I know. Uh, It's been probably 13 years since I've been schwellerized, and my self-esteem was really getting sort of high, so I thought I'd better come back and (laughs) get cut back down to size uh, again um, and... uh, 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 my old buddy Ted Hopp, Ted Hopp, who called me at the last minute and said I couldn't be at your talk, but don't take it personally, uh, great to uh, see him again, and uh, John Mueller and uh, Alex Went, and uh, a lot of the other uh, terrific folks that uh, have come together here in, uh, in IR. Uh, and so uh, I'm glad to be back and uh, also glad to uh, have your comments uh, on this paper. I'm fooling around with it. Liberal America's illiberalism or America's illiberal liberalism, or I I keep moving things around. Uh, It's all grammatically correct, and I don't think it changes the meaning too much, but I haven't really decided uh, exactly what the title is. Let me tell you a little bit about (coughs) the background of uh, how I got interested in this. It seems to me uh, the increasing illiberalism of the United States uh, of the past few years uh, is something of a puzzle. Uh, and I'll tell you in a few minutes why I think that uh, this is puzzling, but you know, the, the key manifestation uh, of this illiberalism, uh, it seems to me, is pretty clear. Uh, internationally, uh, we've engaged in preemptive war, uh, and we're overtly pursuing a strategy of uh, hegemony, uh, if not empire. And in fact, I never thought, having gone to graduate school in the 1980s, uh, that I'd ever hear anybody uh, make the case for imperialism in a positive sense, I mean it used to be imperialism was a dirty word, Uh, it it no longer is anymore. As Max Boot tells us, uh, we should all get jodhpurs and pith helmets and uh, emulate the the British. And even domestically, uh, there's been uh, increasing manifestations of illiberalism, the USA Patriot Act, uh, the uh, NSA domestic uh, surveillance. Uh, And even uh, in a number of cases, uh, willingness uh, and and a willingness to defend overtly rendition and uh, torture uh, of terror suspects. Uh, So it seems to me the increasing illiberalism of the United States uh, is uh, uh, pretty much an uncontroversial fact. Uh, The question is why, and, and the question is also why is this puzzling? Uh, I think this is puzzling because I don't think it's purely reducible to uh, the September 11th attacks uh, and the subsequent global war on terrorism. And, in fact, what I want to try to argue uh, over the next half hour or so is, in fact, this illiberalism, in fact, has deep roots and a lot of continuity uh, with uh, previous periods uh, in American history. Uh, I think, and this drove Ted crazy at dinner last night, That there are a lot of continuities, for example, between the uh, Bush administration—or excuse me, the Clinton administration—and the Bush 43 administration. And some of some uh, others of you might also find that a pretty jarring claim uh, to accept. Uh, And in fact, uh, what also is puzzling is that uh, a lot of the uh, manifestations uh, of illiberalism, both domestically and internationally, uh, are uh, relatively uh, bipartisan. Um, and so, given that, uh, this does seem to be a, uh, a puzzling development. Now, as I suggested before, um, whoops, the conventional wisdom would be to say, there's no puzzle uh, in this whatsoever, uh, that 9-11... Uh, uh, awoke the United States up from the 10-year uh, snooze that Fukuyama's end of history started uh, and that we're following uh, the well-worn path that a lot of people going back, at least as far as Harold Laswell suggested that liberal states experience uh, when they're faced with uh, uh, serious threats. Okay? And so that's, that's all there is to it. End of story. Now, what I want to do is to make a little bit different argument. Uh, I want to suggest that uh, it isn't 9-11, uh, and it's not this old uh, you know, and long-standing uh, uh, phenomenon of uh, war-constricting war domestic liberties. But I want to, uh, in fact, suggest that there's something deeply ingrained in American political culture in what uh, the Harvard uh, political scientist Louis Hartz called our liberal tradition – that in fact uh, is uh, ultimately uh, implicated in our increasing uh, illiberalism. Now, maybe it's the case that I'm the victim of the last book I read, and the fact that I'm reading a book that was published in like 1956 just shows you how far behind uh, on the reading list I am. Uh, But in fact, I've come to the conclusion that Hartz's book, The Liberal Tradition in America, is now one of those one or two books that if you were uh, stranded on a desert island uh, you'd want to have with you uh, along maybe with Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War and Randy's first book. But those three... Second book. Oh, okay. I need to be shilling for the second and not the first. Okay. Uh, And in fact, uh, I think that Hartz explains uh, a lot in my view uh, of what's going on today in the... uh, uh, in, in the current illiberal environment. Now, the question is how would American liberalism, and I'm going to unpack this because liberalism is a, a hugely freighted term uh, and one that needs a, a lot of defining in order for it to be useful. But just briefly, how might the liberal tradition account for uh, contemporary American illiberalism? Uh, I think there were basically three mechanisms, and I, I'll sort of lay them out now. And then in the course of the talk, try to develop them, hopefully, to uh, a little bit more of your satisfaction. But my argument is going to be that, the, the, that our liberal tradition leads us to see the global war on terrorism as a very different and fundamentally more dangerous sort of war uh, than, for example, the Cold War. And, and if you look in the paper, uh, I've got you know plenty of quotes, I think, that back that up uh, from the uh, Bush administration. Moreover, the threat that the global war on terrorism presents to us is not just physical, although there is a big element to that, but it's also existential. It's a threat to our way of life. And this is really what activates the uh, the, the liberal tradition, and, and I'll say a little bit more about that. And this is a threat that can't be managed. Okay, You can't contain or deter this threat. It has to be, in uh, Huntington's uh, Hartzian phrase, extirpated. Uh, and there are two ways uh, that the liberal tradition extirpates uh, non-liberal threats. Uh, the positive way, the carrot or the soft way, would be the spread and promotion of democracy. Uh, and the hard way is a ruthless and unceasing war on, uh, on terrorism. Okay. So let me give you a, a roadmap uh, for the rest of the talk. Rick, please let me know, uh, you know when I get close to the time. Or maybe I'll just look and see if people are falling asleep, uh, and I'll know when to, to, to wind it up. But I, I want uh, to try to go through four basic things, and if there's enough time, uh, I, I can try to preempt what I think are the obvious criticisms of, uh, of what I've done. But certainly, I, I want to unpack a little bit more uh, Hartz's liberal tradition argument uh, for you. Because uh, I, I think, unfortunately, despite my enthusiasm for the book, probably most graduate students uh, uh, have not read it, uh, and probably uh, a, lot of, uh, uh, a lot of colleagues uh, probably read it a long time ago and haven't thought about it since then. Secondly, I want to make the argument uh, that the Bush administration and the neoconservative movement that you know, has been so important both inside the, in, in, uh, the administration and outside of it as sort of the intellectual architects uh, for the current war on terrorism, I, I want to make the case that they fall squarely within what Hartz would call America's liberal tradition. Uh, that's actually, I think, an easy case to make uh, and will be relatively uncontroversial. The two controversial parts of the talk, I think, will be, first of all, establishing the links between the liberal tradition um, and America's increasing illiberalism and abroad, uh, abroad and at home. Uh, it's going to be a challenge because it's a counterintuitive argument, uh, but I'll, I'll give you the, the data or the evidence that I have for that. And then secondly making what I think is a Hartzian argument about the importance of realism as an ideological counterweight to liberalism uh, in American foreign policy. Uh, And here the problem I think will be more normative because I think most people think that realists uh, are basically evil people. uh, And I think a lot of people think that uh, realism Uh, is deeply implicated in uh, the Bush administration foreign policy uh, and in a lot of how we're uh, waging the global war on terrorism. So uh, I'm not saying you can't beat me up on any of these four points, but I'm just telling you I think the the points you're really going to be throwing food at are number three and uh, number four. So let me talk just briefly about the liberal tradition in America and and let me start uh, at... Uh, first, uh, first place uh, which is uh, what is liberalism <laughs> this is very important uh, <laughs> liberalism in in Hartz yeah there there we go I think we got to get there right. excellent <laughs> excellent uh, and I'm sorry he didn't come uh, liberalism in uh, Hartz's uh, conception does not mean little l liberalism what we mean by the left of the political <laughs> spectrum Ted Kennedy, Hillary Clinton, Mike Dukakis, uh, you know, whoever that is, Al Franken. I guess when I did this uh, last night at Ohio Wesleyan, I had Al Franken there. And actually, if you put Ted's picture and Al Franken's picture side by side, but I, I, I won't go there. Um, what Hartz has in mind is Big L or classical liberalism. The liberalism of Adam Smith, of, Im- of Immanuel Kant. I should have had a test to see if you could identify these but most especially uh, of John Locke. And in fact, uh, a synonym for Hart's uh, in the liberal tradition for liberalism is what he calls Lockeanism. And the core tenets of Lockeanism are uh, familiar to all of us. Uh, A commitment to individual freedom, a commitment to uh, or belief in the importance of equality of opportunity, uh, an attraction to free markets and unfettered trade, Uh, And finally, uh, and perhaps centrally, uh, a belief that political democracy and political uh, representativeness uh, are a fundamental right uh, of human beings. Now, Hartz's argument in the the liberal tradition uh, was uh, to say that American liberalism, uh, as a result of... uh, the lack of our feudal past, the fact that America was born essentially democratic, and the fact that it grew up in the 19th century in a relatively benign security environment, uh, meant that our liberalism embraced some very distinct propositions. Uh, and the four key ones uh, are the ones that I have up here. First, that development is easy. We were born democratic. If we were born democratic, we're such putzes anybody could be. Secondly, a belief that all good things go together, uh, that democracy is not only normatively good, but it's also good because uh, democracies don't go to war with each other. Democracies are more likely to have market economies. Today, we say democracies uh, don't sponsor terrorism against each other. I mean, all these uh, uh, classic examples of good things coming together. Third premise is that radicalism and revolution are bad. Okay. Uh, a core tenant of American liberalism. Uh, and then finally, uh, a fourth uh, proposition that democracy is uh, political democracy and representativeness is very important and so important that we'd rather have democracy uh, than political order. Now, in Hartz's view, uh, liberalism, this big L liberalism or the liberal tradition is so deeply ingrained that it's uh, at this point bipartisan. You could talk realistically about uh, Woodrow Wilson and Ronald Reagan uh, or these two guys uh, as both being part of America's uh, liberal tradition. Now, if that's all there was to it, uh, there, there would you know really be no objection to this I mean I, and I don't want to be interpreted as coming up here and uh, giving a uh, lecture saying that there's something the matter with uh with liberalism or, or that I disagree with you know the importance of individual uh, liberty and political democracy and free markets and things like that that's not the argument, but what Hartz pointed out was that uh that there there is a downside or there is a dark side to uh, uh, American liberalism. And in fact, Hartz argued, and I quote, that uh, at its core, American liberalism contains a deep and unwritten tyrannical compulsion. Okay. Um, and the evidence for that, uh, you know, you would point to would be the uh, international efforts to impose Lockeanism uh, everywhere. Um, and whether this is a unique function of American liberalism or whether, in fact, you can implicate other sorts of liberalisms you know, might be something that we would uh, talk about. One of Alex's uh, old colleagues at the University of Chicago, Uday Mehta, was he there when you were there? Okay. Uh, has a very good book on uh, 19th century British liberalism Uh, And colonialism, in uh, in, in which the the, uh, liberalism uh, was uh, one of the key buttresses uh, for uh, the the British colonial project. Uh, And Jennifer Pitts uh, has a very good book, Contrasting. British liberalism and continental liberalism in part on some of these same issues. Um, I don't want to get into... Eventually, if I pursue this project, I'm going to have to pursue that uh, further. Uh, But my point is is that whether you think it's unique to uh, American liberalism uh, or a function of liberalism more generally, uh, there seems to be this impulse to spread Locke uh, around the world. And and think about Kant's uh, famous essay, The Perpetual Peace, One of the propositions of the League of Republican Peace is the stipulation that every regime be Republican for the system uh, really to work. Um, And it seems to me that same logic in liberalism drives liberals uh, to spread liberalism in order to get all the good things that liberalism uh, is supposed to get us. How many times throughout American history have we fought perpetual war for for perpetual peace? Uh, the uh, University of Texas historian uh, Robert uh, Devine had a very good book precisely by that uh, title uh, chronicling how many times uh, in American history uh, the United States uh, fought wars to end all wars. Not only do we fight a lot of wars, and if you remember, you know, there, there's the uh, famous uh, uh, democratic peace, the uh, finding that uh, no two democracies have gone to war, with each other arguably since uh, 1815. Uh, The question why that's the case is much debated, but the the empirical fact is pretty much accepted. The flip side to that is that uh, uh, democratic and liberal states are actually more likely than other types of regimes uh, to uh, actually go to war. So there's a lot of war going on uh, uh, by uh, democratic and liberal regimes, even if they're not uh, fighting with each other. Finally, liberal wars can be quite intense. Uh, If you're fighting wars to end all wars, uh, then things can be done, things can be justified that in the normal course of things, uh, it seems to me uh, would not be accepted uh, in in terms of war. Uh, Carl Schmitt in the concept of uh, of the political has a very famous whine about the wars of humanity being the uh, most vicious of all wars. And I I think there's a uh, a good deal of truth to that. Okay, so that's the external side uh, of uh, what Hartz called Lockean absolutism. Uh, There's also an internal side to it. and In fact, when Hartz wrote his famous book in the 1950s, the key thing he had in mind uh, was McCarthyism which he interpreted as being a manifestation of the uh, liberal tradition, trying to extirpate uh, non-liberal alternatives, in in this case, communism, uh, from American political life. Uh, Sam Huntington's famous book, The Soldier and the State, uh, is a Hartzian treatment of the problem of civil-military relations as a fundamental conflict between, on the one hand, uh, a liberal civil society and a conservative realist military. And the, the, the key source of tension uh, in Huntington's view, and you know, it's clearly a Hartzian <laughs> argument, is that civil, liberal civilian society just finds it very difficult to live with this non-liberal institution uh, as an inextricable uh, part of it. I mean, I, I could go uh, on and on, but uh, in the, uh, the interest of time, uh, I'm going to uh, uh, move forward. Other than to simply say that the problem with liberalism, in Hartz's view, was uh, or American liberalism for sure, uh, is the historical uh, problem that American liberalism developed without a knowledge of non-liberal intellectual uh, alternatives, uh, and also a philosophical belief in the superiority of liberalism uh, that makes it inclined to regard any non-liberal way of thinking uh, as not only wrong but immoral. Okay. So if you accept Hartz's argument, then all of a sudden the, the, this paradoxical claim that liberalism can be quite illiberal, it seems to me at least theoretically, uh, is not crazy. Now, let me go to the, uh, uh, to the next section um, and talk just a little bit uh, about the uh, Bush administration and the neoconservatives uh, as being part of the liberal tradition. Now, they always tell you, I'm a, by the way, I'm a PowerPoint neophyte, uh, and uh, they tell you there are a couple of mistakes you can do in PowerPoint. and I, I've actually made them all uh, in, in recent weeks. Uh, one is, uh, and I made them both on this slide, one is when you do uh, the color of the font of the text as uh, the same color as the background, uh, and I think I fixed that. But then the related problem is when you put too much uh, on, one, uh, on one slide, uh, and I haven't fixed that. But the point here is to uh, simply suggest to you that if you do a comparison uh, of uh, liberals and neocons uh, on a number of sort of fundamental issues uh, of how the world works, uh, it seems to me that on a lot of them, uh, uh, you you find uh, a surprising amount of overlap uh, between liberalism and uh, neoconservatism. Now there's some big, big differences. Uh, And number seven, on the role of international institutions and more generally uh, on whether uh, you should conduct business unilaterally or multilaterally. Uh, That's a big difference between the two. Uh, Although I think, uh, and I'll try to make the argument throughout the course of the talk, that this is really a tactical difference. But on the big differences of what objectives you're seeking in the world, there's actually a surprising amount of uh, overlap. Bush is a liberal. This might, I, I, I don't know the first time anybody tells you this, how jarring it is on your ears. Uh, but when you think about it, uh, Bush has a lot of commonality. I mean, you know, uh, uh, David Kennedy, the uh, great diplomatic historian at Stanford, had a, had a fine piece uh, in The Atlantic uh, eight or nine months ago on what George W. Bush owes to Woodrow Wilson. Uh, and in fact, uh, Lawrence Kaplan in the New Republic uh, was happy to claim uh, both Wilson and Bush uh, as uh, part of the uh, neocon uh, view of the world. Now, the neoconservatives, uh, you know, I, one could start with Irving Kristol's famous characterization uh, of neoconservatives as, as liberals who got mugged. Um, and if you look at sort of the evolution of neoconservatism, uh, it clearly uh, evolved out of the uh, left of the American political spectrum. Uh, and my only point is to say uh, that uh, it, in that course of evolution, can I be talking about evolution here in Ohio? <laughs> I guess uh, after, after a day or two ago I can't. Uh, but they haven't evolved uh, all that far uh, in many important respects. But let me see if I can give you uh, a little bit more concrete evidence to, uh, to support this claim. And remember the, uh, the, the four uh, specific implications uh, in American liberalism uh, that I had identified before. Let's talk about development being easy. Okay? Well, that, that belief uh, characterized, for example, the liberal political development school that uh, arose uh, in the, uh, among the Cambridge and MIT economists of the 50s and uh, 1960s. Um, And, you know, these guys were sort of classic uh, American liberals. Compare that to what uh, Bush wrote uh, in the uh, 2002 National Security Strategy in Chapter 8 on economic development and the Millennium Challenge Program. Uh, Again, uh, a belief that if we just change the incentives uh, for third world development and foreign aid, uh, capitalism will take off like a shot. Uh, so this idea that development's easy, this is a common, uh, a common belief uh, across the political se- uh, spectrum and sort of trans-historical. All good things go together. The democratic peace. The democratic peace actually has a you know, long pedigree in American politics. I defy you uh, if I were to take uh, Clinton's 1996 national security strategy, white out his name and the date on it, and then do the same thing with Bush's 2002 national security strategy, uh, I, I'm guessing that uh, that very few of you would be able to tell the difference, because both of them embrace in a huge way the democratic peace, and again for the same sort of reason, that with democracy uh, will come all sorts of uh, good things. Radicalism and revolution being bad? Well, Think of what Woodrow Wilson said uh Uh, during the uh, the Mexican Revolution and to justify one of his periodic incursions. We need to teach the Mexicans to elect good men. Now, there seems to be more than a faint echo of that in what the Bush administration said in response to the Hamas uh, election uh, in the Palestinian territory. We're proposing a a series of uh, economic sanctions to basically teach the Palestinians to uh, elect good men. And more generally, the Bush administration's attitude towards Islamic uh, uh, fundamentalism has uh, had a lot of Wilsonianism about it. Uh, Finally, democracy being more important than order. Uh, Jimmy Carter was uh, willing to push his human rights agenda Uh, to such an extent that it threatened the hold on power of American allies like the Shah of Iran and Anastasio Somoza in Nicaragua. And and when I heard Donald Rumsfeld in April of 2003 responding to uh, the looting that was going on in Iraq, and I'll just take the liberty of quoting here, he said, freedom's untidy and free people are free to make mistakes and commit crimes and do bad things. They're also free to live their lives and do wonderful things democracy more important uh, than order, order. Seems pretty clear in Rumsfeld's case. Okay, so let me then go uh, to the the whole question of uh, the links between the liberal tradition uh, and today's illiberal policies. Uh, And I'll try to wind this up relatively quickly so there's lots of time for discussion. What's my evidence uh, that the liberal tradition is ultimately what's uh, behind this? Four things. First of all, and this is what I went over in the previous section, uh, Bush and the neocons pretty clearly buy into the liberal tradition's key assumptions. Okay. Secondly, I, I want to give you evidence in this part of the talk that lots of liberals, uh, small L liberals, also support many of these illiberal policies in the United States, suggesting that they're far more bipartisan uh, than uh, we would you know, normally think. Thirdly, I also want to show that the Bush administration's rationales for doing these things and the rationales offered uh, by uh, liberals uh, are remarkably similar. Uh, And then finally, uh, I want to also uh, try to provide some evidence that this isn't just rhetoric, that in fact the Bush people really believe it. And the key rhetoric, or I mean the key evidence here, is that the Bush administration says the same thing in private that it does in public about advancing these things. So just very quickly, hegemony and empire. For those of you who think that this uh, was a a new innovation uh, by the Bush administration, I'd invite you to go back and listen to what Secretary of State Madeleine Albright told the Europeans when they got uppity about our relatively unilateral intervention uh, in Kosovo. She said, if we have to use force, it's because we are America. We are the indispensable nation. We stand tall. We see further into the future. So when Condi Rice, uh, eight or nine or seven or eight years later, said uh, characterized uh, the United States as the world's guardian, she really wasn't saying anything much different than what uh, uh, Albright had said earlier. What about preventive war? Okay, uh, Bush's fullest articulation uh, for a uh, policy of preventive war was laid out in a commencement speech at uh, uh, at West Point, and we're all familiar with the. Uh, uh, with the rationale for that, what was really striking was not that this rationale—well, uh, that this rationale did not generate uh, thunderous opposition, and in fact, a lot of people who, in other contexts, you might have uh, expected to oppose it, chimed in and endorsed it. And in the paper, uh, I've got a uh, quote from Leon Weisel here. The uh, Uh, the uh, literary editor of the New Republic, one of the sort of staple journals of American liberalism, uh, outlining a well-articulated argument about how liberalism and preventive war are by no means incompatible. Restricting civil liberties. Now, surely this must be a case uh, where American liberals, both Big L and Little L, uh, ought to be off the reservation with the Bush administration. I mean, who could endorse... Uh, the extreme position that uh, former uh, Attorney General John Ashcroft took uh, on the USA Patriot Act—well, none other than America's foremost civil libertarian, Alan Dershowitz, uh, whose key—you know—his key line on this whole thing was uh, to echo uh, Ashcroft's uh, claim that uh, people should relax and uh, learn to live with a much more constrained set of civil liberties. Okay, but torture. Now, surely on torture, uh, there must be uh, substantial voices uh, from the uh, liberal community clamoring to uh, oppose torture. But even here, it's hard to find them. Uh, And in fact, uh, uh, Senator Jay Rockefeller from uh, West Virginia, uh, Charles Schumer from New York, otherwise avatars of uh, liberalism uh, in the Democratic Party uh, both uh, found ways to rationalize uh, torture in the context of the uh, the global war on terrorism, and in fact, this isn't just a uh, a post 11 development. Uh, the debate uh, or the discussion it hasn't been a debate because liberals have basically all agree on this point that there are circumstances in which torture can be used. You know, this was a, a discussion that began with Michael Walzer you know, 20 or 30 years ago, and that Alan Dershowitz has uh, picked up recently in the context of the uh, Israeli suppression of the uh, the Intifada. Now, there are two arguments that liberals have made that uh, torture, the, the, the fundamental prohibition or norm against torture can be uh, breached. One is the famous ticking bomb scenario. Uh, you know, you've got a... Uh, uh, a terrorist uh, or suspected terrorist in custody that you think uh, has knowledge that if you can get it out of him or her in a half hour you can save hundreds of, of lives um, and uh, this has been the uh, you know sort of the standard uh, liberal justification for torture under extreme circumstances but there's a new justification that's come out that in fact is even less restrictive and this is an argument that uh, John Yu, uh, the Berkeley uh, law professor, but who became famous or infamous uh, for his role uh, at working for uh, Attorney General uh, Ashcroft, there's an argument, a new argument, that's coming out that says uh, that uh, the uh, uh, combatants who are apprehended in the global war on terrorism are not subject to uh, the Geneva Conventions and other rules of war uh, because uh, they are uh, they are basically beyond the pale of civilization. Okay, now this was uh, essentially used rationale, and you'd think at least here uh, that the uh, you know the classic liberal thinkers uh, in American political discourse would distance themselves from that. Uh, but Dershowitz didn't. Uh, Jean Bethke Elstein from the uh, Divinity School at the University of Chicago, and even Michael Walzer, uh, have all found that this argument—that uh, terrorists, be just because of the uh, the, uh, the tactics that they uh, employ, have placed themselves beyond the uh, the, the norms of uh, of civil society. Okay, So again, not a lot of opposition uh, in those uh, quarters as well. And in, in, in fact, Elstein and Waltz are very smart people who've devoted a lot of effort to uh, trying to uh, reconcile liberalism with these uh, illiberal policies. Okay, the last thing that I want to... Uh, uh, whoop. No, I, we can go to that. The, the last thing I want to try to lay out before I uh, uh, throw myself at the mercy of the court here... Uh, is my uh, argument about realism as a counterweight to liberalism. Now, I I think this is a very Hartzian approach. Remember, Hartz was, uh, in his context, uh, a a liberal. He thought that what he was doing was identifying problems within liberalism and coming up with uh, a way to uh, reform liberalism. He was not an anti-liberal. Now, I'm not going to say I'm not an anti-liberal. I'm just going to leave that up to your imagination. Uh, But I do think that the project that I'm engaged here is Hartzian in the sense that I'm not proposing uh, doing away with American liberalism. I guess Randy wrote a paper about realism as fascism, which I'd love to read. Um, But that's not what I'm I'm doing today. Rather, what I'm trying to say is to pick up on Hartz's uh, fundamental argument that the problem Uh, with uh, uh, American liberalism is the lack of intellectual diversity. That's the core of the problem. And the problem I see is that uh, there aren't really fundamental differences uh, within the political spectrum uh, of our country on a lot of these issues. There are, to be sure, tactical differences. The neocons, Uh, are happy to operate unilaterally and don't have much use for multilateral institutions. But in terms of the common ends, there's surprisingly little disagreement. Uh, The idea, the notion of spreading democracy, that's apple pie, motherhood, Chevrolet, and spreading democracy. Those are the four key tenets of modern American liberalism. Okay, so why would realism be better? And let me just go through this uh, uh, really quickly. First of all, uh, I think... Realpolitik offers a perspective on the global war on terrorism that would take some of the panic uh, out of how we look at it. Um, this idea, and, and I've got a great quote from Bush in the paper uh, that uh, you know, where he argues that uh, the global war on terrorism is more threatening than the Cold War, uh, and how one can say that a Major superpower war where both sides were armed to the teeth conventionally and with nuclear weapons, uh, and where if we'd have actually gone to war, we'd have not only gotten our hair must, as they say, as uh, General turgeson said in Doctor Strangelove, but you know we we had a realistic possibility of ending life as we know it. Now, comparing the global war on terrorism, uh, I was as shocked as anybody else uh, on uh, Tuesday. Uh, September 11, 2001, with the attack in New York. But when you go back and you sort of run the math uh, on what costs al-Qaeda has imposed on us, uh, if you start from the first World Trade Center attack uh, in 1993 and take it up to the present and ask how many Americans have been killed by al-Qaeda, the number is uh, right around 3,000. Now, how many Americans died in one day at Pearl Harbor? How many Americans died throughout uh, the course of World War I and World War II? How many Americans died in Vietnam or in all the wars of the Cold War? You've got to put this into context. Uh, and realism uh, counsels uh, a prudent caution but not panic. And the liberal tradition, I think, leads us to panic. Secondly, the nature of the adversaries that we face The liberal tradition sees uh, or portrays them uh, as mindless religious fanatics, uh, people that can only be converted or extirpated. Uh, I think the realist view would have a a more balanced view. We don't see al-Qaeda as 10 feet tall. Uh, To be sure, there's going to be a a real military fight uh, with some elements of al-Qaeda, but on the other hand, these people aren't crazy. Uh, This idea... Uh, of using terrorism is uh, uh, a form of asymmetric warfare that shouldn't have caught us all that uh, by surprise. Thirdly, I think realists are more comfortable with radicalism internationally, and particularly radical <laughs> nationalism. Uh, and the reason for that is that nationalism for us is the key animating mechanism in balancing in international politics. So the point is, again, not that all... Uh, that we can live with all radical nationalism, but on the other hand, radical nationalism uh, rarely poses a major threat to the United States, and it is uh, a, uh, an important part of the balancing dynamics of international politics. What about on the protection of uh, human rights and the prohibition against torture? Do you go back and look at the torture papers, and they're actually all compiled in one handy volume, The people that were most bullshy about throwing the Geneva Convention out the window were invariably civilians, either in the Department of Justice, in the White House, or the Office of the Secretary of Defense. The most eloquent defense of maintaining the Geneva Conventions and of treating uh, al-Qaeda and uh, Taliban uh, prisoners as enemy prisoners of war uh, with some, uh, some uh, of the uh, pr- protections of the Geneva Conventions were uh, judge-advocate general corps uh, officers in uniform. Now, this was a pragmatic argument. It wasn't really a principled argument. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, they understood that pragmatically, even though al-Qaeda was quite likely to violate these things, that maintaining a regime of the protection of uh, prisoners of war uh, was in our interest, uh, and uh, we're quite skeptical uh, of the uh, early Bush administration efforts to relax it. By the way, I think they also understood that what happened with the migration of what was supposed to be limited extreme measures uh, against Al Qaeda in Afghanistan to. Uh, Camp X ray in Guantanamo Bay and then ultimately to Iraq at Abu Ghraib and other locations was inevitable. There's a slippery slope. You know, once you say, well, you know, Ramzi bin al we're gonna waterboard him. Uh, then it's very hard to limit it to him and you know uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and a few other of the top-tier prisoners because very quickly, uh, those once you breach that prohibition, uh, down you go. And then finally, realists uh, have been in the forefront of arguing that uh, hegemony uh, might not only be unnecessary for the United States but might actually be counterproductive. So this is my story. Uh, I'm going to stick to it through today, uh, but uh, I look forward to your uh, your comments and suggestions, because I am very early in this, and uh, I really do need to uh, think a lot of these things through. Alex?
2: Um, it's very interesting and provocative talk, and I totally agree with almost everything you said, so
1: uh, my comments are... Friendly? Friendly comments, yes, yeah, I guess I want to make two quick comments
2: and a very quick question about how to work past here. First of all, from where I sit, IR world of things, there's a bit of a reinventing the rule of politics in this argument. A lot of postmodern scholars, critical IR scholars, have been arguing for some time that liberalism is constitutionally predisposed toward a need to extirpate difference, extirpate the other, and so on. Um, so they would probably agree with you, but then wonder why you're not engaging that literature. And a lot of that literature relies on Carl Schmidt and his descendants. And you might probably use flesh this out, although if he did that, he would also probably want to think about the sort of political downside of the Shemini approach, Something like that, so
3: um, that's tricky. So um, that's one comment. That
1: just one, one, small, <laughs> one small bad part of it.
2: <laughs> um, secondly, though, and I think this is one of the issues that I think comes out of reading this more postmodern scholarship that makes arguments similar to your own, is that it's not totally clear there.
1: Now, you're saying I'm a postmodernist. Well, I've okay. lot of okay. here. Um,
2: it's not clear there or here uh, why is liberalism threatened existentially by radical difference, And a that's assumed, I think that's plausible. Um, but actually, it would be useful to say much more about that and exactly why this is the case. And then finally, my question is as I recall, you're on record as saying that culture doesn't really matter in the security of the domain. Um, and yet, this is entirely a cultural argument. So, I guess I'm wondering whether you've seen the light of the
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Was it Dr. Johnson who said a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin and the small mind? Uh, uh, I mean, the, the, uh, your, your points uh, were, uh, were excellent. Uh, specifically, the question of uh, liberalism and, and what it is about liberalism specifically that makes it intolerant of difference. Uh, and that's going to require me to do a lot more thinking about liberalism. Because I'm, I'm sort of, after reading uh, Meta, uh I'm coming to believe uh, that, that, that there's a broader problem with liberalism uh, beyond what Hart's identified in American liberalism. Now, the, the, the Pitts book, and I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm giving you my summer reading list uh, book report, uh, but the Pitts book suggests a, 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 a very interesting difference between continental liberalism and British liberalism on the I- issue of colonialism uh, and it seems to me that uh, you know, one uh, avenue to uh, look into is we, what were the overlaps between uh, our liberal tradition and 19th century liberalism in Britain you know, that became, became the uh, handmaiden to uh, British colonialism um, and uh, that's where I think I've got to go before I'm going to be able to give you a good answer to that question. Now, apropos of your gotcha point uh, I, and, and again, I'm so early into the project, I can only uh, uh, raise this possibility. But you'll remember it, and if I don't end up delivering on it, no doubt you'll uh, give me grief about it. Else. Um, but I think that one of the one of the arguments that you could that you might be able to make about a commonality between Britain and the United States is that both liberalisms evolved in relatively benign environments. You know, Britain being a uh, uh, an isolated uh, um, island, the United States for most of the 19th century being relatively isolated as well too. So I'd have to look more about more at that, but you know there is a possibility that one could write the Hart's argument more broadly and say the difference between Anglo-American liberalism. <laughs> Which is more subject to these liberal tendencies than European liberalism might come in there. That would be good because that would get me off the. Uh, uh, I, I turn traitor and uh, uh, join the ranks of the enemy, or, or I'm inconsistent. Uh, but as a fallback position, I, you know, I'll be happy to uh, take my lumps uh, on either of those. Well, you wouldn't have to see them as inconsistent. You would see realism and the more cultural
4: arguments as actually common. So right. right. Uh, Tim. Yeah, i heard a very interesting talk and I'm uh, one kind of uh, uh, conceptual point and then one point an empirical point um, on bringing back hearts. Um, I mean, there's a lot of work that suggests, I mean, I have Roger Smith in my where He says, look, we don't have a liberal tradition. We have multiple traditions and there's also lots of traditions in America that are all about um, uh, uh, inequality, particularly for uh, racial and ethnic that, groups that, that uh that Know, the liberal tradition is a very convenient myth, a uh, convenient story that we all, you know, perhaps like to believe, but there are lots of, lots of evidence out there that it's more of an ideology rather than, you know, the way things actually uh, uh, happen. And on the, uh, the, the, the Bush administration, I, I think you're really overselling the notion that, um, that, that there's some kind of commitment to selling democracy abroad. I mean, when... Bush ran for presidency uh, before 9/11 there was a hunger America uh, nation-building is bad meddling in Russia's internal affairs to build democracy was a huge mistake and I think if, I know, at least if, right if, to
5: say. if
4: you know if they have found um, uh, a link between Saddam and al-qaeda or found nuclear weapons in Iraq we wouldn't even be talking about this I mean this is really you know a fallback position that all of a sudden is now come which might not
1: have the normative yeah. uh, weight that you're giving it. Yes, yeah, th- this is an excellent point. I mean, this is if I'd have had time to anticipate the obvious objections. Uh, and I didn't read uh, the obvious, but the 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 better way to state it is: you're telling me that uh, Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld are liberals, uh, and, and you know the idea of, of that. I think for for most people would be. Uh, Uh, quite, you know, that'd be a hard uh, uh, hurdle to get over. Let me just say two things. Uh, First of all, the Neocons project uh, well antedated the 9-11 attacks. You look with Paul Wolfowitz and a lot of these other guys who are very important, including, by the way, people like Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld signed on board to a number of the projects on the New American Century's uh, you know, open letters and things like that. Uh, th- this idea that uh, you know these th- these people came out of nowhere after 9/11 is increasingly uh, unsustainable. Now, if uh, what's his name, Paul O'Neill is to be believed, uh, the first cabinet meeting uh, that uh, Bush held after his inauguration, you know, sort of item number one on the agenda was Iraq. Right. This is, if my history is right, well before 9/11. Not building a,
4: a democratic
2: Iraq, but getting rid of Saddam.
4: No, no, no,
1: no, the, the, the idea of the democratic domino theory here, it, you you got to go back to the 90s and remember the coalition that came together to support Clinton's uh, assertive American policy in defense of human rights and you know humanitarian intervention. Uh, these neocons were were on board. They were signing newspaper ads supporting. Uh, Clinton going into uh, uh, Bosnia and Kosovo and chiding him for not going into uh, Rwanda. Uh, the the uh, uh, Iraq Freedom Act was it, uh, in 1998. I mean that was that was pushed through by this you know sort of same coalition. So this idea that uh, uh, that uh, spread of democracy was uh, a panacea to America's strategic problems in the Middle East had a relatively long pedigree. So what I would have said to him if you had gone after me with you know Rummy and Cheney, uh, I, I would have said that the key driving intellectual forces were not these guys. These guys, especially Cheney. Cheney was part of the much-hated Bush 41 administration uh, that dropped the ball in Iraq, that didn't finish the job, that traitorously... Uh, Sold out the uh, Iraqi Shia when they arose uh, in response to our uh, to our call. Th- these people, uh, you know, the, the neocons were unhappy with that from the get-go. And people like Rumsfeld and Cheney, especially, who was, you know, part of that decision within the Bush administration, were the people that came around, not vice versa. Now, if I sound like I've got old-time religion on this, I do because I wrote a piece on uh, the uh, neoconservatism and realism in the summer of 2001 uh, in the context of what direction I thought the Bush administration was going. Uh, and I thought I did, you in know, all humility, uh, a good job of sort of laying out the different views uh, and what the different uh, agendas were. I made the mistake of thinking because uh, Don Rumsfeld, rather than Paul Wolfowitz, became Secretary of Defense, uh, that Condi Rice was the National Security Advisor and that Colin Powell was the Secretary of State that somehow that meant that realism was ascended and the neocons got, you know, basically the booby drugs. Now, in retrospect, I think I was entirely wrong about that. Part of it was, you know, uh, uh, you know I, I, I didn't know enough, you know, Washington inside baseball to, to really understand it. But part of it, I think, uh, and part of it might have been wishful thinking. You know, realists always like to see uh, realism prosper in those rare moments that it does. Um, but I, I think part of it too was uh, my lack of understanding about how totally uh, they dominated the intellectual debate now this isn't to say that 911 wasn't you know wasn't part of this, but it is to say that uh, the stage had been set you know well back in the 90s for these guys uh, to uh, take the helm and in fact there's lots of evidence that uh, you know they were already influencing a lot of uh, lot of politics.
2: Uh, yeah.
3: Um, let
1: me start to make two
2: points. one. It follows up on what Tim was saying. I mean, what happens is when the country feels threatened is liberals and ill-liberals you know, jump on the bandwagon and restrict civil liberties. Roosevelt, the Japanese the, uh, in jails, the the There's liberals who created during the McCarthy era concentration camps, which are a uh, communist country, emergency. So it does seem to be a really impelling thing It's really much more 9-11. What happens is you may have people who are interested in doing things like making Middle East safer for Israel and find a use of that in the the, 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 the policy uh, environment because they now have this opportunity. But uh, with Bush and uh, Lisa Rice radically changing, it suggests that the whole thing
5: basically, you know, they've this this, uh, epiphany of a
1: movement that's much pressure policy. Yeah, but remember the torture debate. And again, we don't think Anybody. about it because the, the torture debate really, impuri- or not empirically, but its policy focus during the 90s was on what the Israelis were doing in the context of the uh, suppression of the first and second al-Oxid at the bottom. But well before 9-11... You know, it's torture. Right, right, but some of this, team Beth, and Michael Watson they, they don't love it the way you know uh, Dershowitz lays awake at night <laughs> or <laughs> fantasizes about the best way to torture people but already the rationale uh, for uh, you know for, for reconciling torture with liberalism all the groundwork had been done before 9/11 all the groundwork had been done uh, before 9/11 in uh, arguing that the spread of democracy uh, was going to not only uh, be true to our values, but also uh, pay off in concrete policy dividends by uh, democratic peace, uh, by the, uh, the uh, reinforcement of free trade, uh, by the uh, suppression of terrorism and things like that. So I don't. On the one hand, I don't want uh, to be to go too far and to, to say that 9/11 wasn't very important, but on the other hand, I think. You don't want to go to the other extreme and ignore the fact that a lot of you know a lot of this had already been going on before nine eleven. Uh, and uh,
2: will any of this happen without nine eleven? Would there have been torture with the invasion? Uh, yeah, they, well, any yeah the, this was the,
1: the argument I had with your uh, colleague Ted Hopp at uh, dinner last night because he wants to believe that uh, Bill Clinton, uh, if only Bill Clinton, you know, we repealed uh, whatever mm-hmm. amendment that is that. Restricts uh, presidents from a third or fourth term. If whole Bill were in were in power, everything would have been different.
2: Might the same thing, but only because of 9 Without 9/11, I think uh,
1: I think hegemony. I think we would still have been pursuing hegemony uh, if uh, Clinton was in power. Uh, I think. but we were already.
5: and it's,
2: it's more than. Never. It was more than. that. indispensable? It, I have just one other thing. Can you sure, know, name the realists who said terrorism is not a very big threat in print?
1: I said it here today. I know.
2: Am I not a,
5: not a
1: realist?
2: You don't have a realist, I don't remember. I yeah, know, but I didn't say it. Say <laughs> <how
5: that tradition>. <laughs> 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 oh, not Walt. Walt says it, yeah.
2: Chris Lane? No, Walt says it. Oh, okay. Chris, Chris Lane says it.
6: Yeah. Uh,
1: I think, you know, the wrap on Tate's, uh, one of the wraps on Tate's was, normalization, suicide terrorism. I mean, I think, I'd have to go back and look at it again, chapter and verse. Does he, does he actually say suicide terrorism is not a big deal? Well, he has a vested in interest in it being a big deal, because that's what's uh, selling soap. Sell. Uh, but I also think that, you know, in, in looking at how people have reacted to the book, one of the things that really drives him, two things drive people crazy. One is the normative thing, uh, treating it basically as a form of asymmetric warfare. But secondly, you know the the policy punchline of this book is to basically say there are a few things that we can do to you know to win this war, and they're relatively speaking uh, minor things, and they you know they don't involve the uh, more uh, expansive uh, waging of the global war on terrorism that the, the Bush administration uh, has engaged in. Um, I mean, I, I I guess I'd go back uh, and uh, the you
2: know, it, very good people.
4: Okay, well, I mean, you quote me. Uh, if I ever get this thing accomplished. And a hippie uh, proposition, but I, I'd be happy to. I just want you to have more company.
1: Yeah. You <laughs> never have any company. I'm like uh, Imperial Germany, self in <laughs> Hi, um, I actually...
6: Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. Who are you? Uh, Dan Nexon. Oh, damn. I wanted to uh, I, mean, I wanted to, to share the sort of launch realm, and I'm completely convinced it was before you wrote this paper, Send said a few things to that effect, but um, I wanted to, to, to push you on a couple of things. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll skip this up. I think that, well, it's interesting, I would be very careful about suggesting that British liberalism is a non security environment. I think mean, that if you look at British liberalism, that Locke is, and as are talking about the 17th and 18th century, which are very for security environments for British, uh, Locke is not for nothing worrying about French disease, i.e., the French opposition. Uh, England was invaded in 1688 by the Dutch, and they remarried it, it as a good thing. But uh, it's essentially they're successfully success invaded, and some uh, kind of support. Um, so implication, I want to start with your implications. It seems to me there's a, there's a self-contradiction. If you are right, and I think you are right in maybe a modified sense that the Hart's thesis is correct, right? That, that American... Political discourse is so suffused by liberalism that alternative kinds of discourses are so squeezed out. Right? Like if you want to make a sustained argument that it can gain political traction, you have to do so from within the poor liberal assumption. Well, realism can never be a counterweight to right? Realism will never gain political traction to the extent that it is you know, illiberal in some of the propositions. The only logical <coughs> counterweight that we have available would not be realism, no matter how correct the realist arguments are. would be a kind of Eikenberry-style privileging of liberal order over, um, that is, the order for its own sake over sort of expansionist liberalism democratic you know, progressive democracy. So it seems to me that if you're right, uh, your alternative would be sort of wrong from a political standpoint. Um, secondly, uh, I am actually, uh, this sort of comes out of John's comments, comments. I'm actually concerned about the lack of politics, right, in the sense that there's sort of these broad cultural structures that are doing all of the work of the argument but clearly um, a lot of the, the there is not only a bureaucratic but a larger sort of politics the impact of September 11 uh, the impact of the sort of ramping up of rhetoric or terrorism makes certain kinds of arguments more difficult to make uh, than they might otherwise be liberal arguments against torture for example or uh, liberal arguments against democracy not, become not only maybe constitutively difficult but more pragmatically to make in the context of the current security of the environment. And indeed, uh, people like uh Ron Krebs and his response to Kanye Kaufman's and his current make the point that there's sort of the p- political manipulation, and psychological effects of September 1th may have profound repercussions, even within kind of a liberal tradition, for, for the fact that you know <coughs> not only sort of pro-Israeli but um, sort of more moderate uh, Perform liberals like Elstein or even Never Walter, who's not a liberal, who self-descripts himself as a social democrat, might then feel compelled to sort of rationalize uh, some of these kinds of policies. Uh, the last thing I wanted to push you on was alternative arguments. It strikes me that there are three alternative arguments that you need to engage with. Um, one is a kind of realist organized hypocrisy, right? In other words, if it's true that American political culture is sufficient by liberalism, you would expect that rationalizations, both cognitive rationalizations, uh, and policy, political rationalizations for actions, would be full of liberal norms. right? So it may be that the United States uh, is responding in a, in a sort of realist way, right? maybe in a realist way to certain elements of the security environment, but there are self <coughs> important aspects of the norms talk about liberalism that do some of your explanatory parts. So there's a kind of realist, there's a the second realist which is what Alex is doing, which is the Schmittian. Logic, right? Schmitt's right about the nature of politics, otherification, and existential threats, so you can find this argument in the securitization, right? in the secur- This isn't liberalism. Right? This isn't a common pathology of liberalism. It's a common pathology of securitization. It's a common pathology of fighting warfare. Right? So if, your argument, if you want to gain traction in your argument, it seems to me it can't be an inside-out argument. You need to at least compare other instances of of uh, uh, mobilization for warfare against internal external threats or, or similarly situated threats in other political traditions, Russia, Vietnam, for example, and Chechnya, to see whether or not it's the Schmidtian logic that's doing the work or the liberal logic. The third kind of alternative would simply be a kind of imperial, logic, right? Power justifies itself. The American power justifies itself on liberal grounds. Uh, French power justifies itself on French grounds, but
1: all of these... It, this is the Athenians of Melos. Stru- it, yeah. you know,
6: it may be that, that power has to justify itself in ideologically absolute ways, particularly if you're hegemonic or imperial character, and then this has some <coughs> kinds of structural ramifications that are maybe modified by the presence of liberalism, but are not itself generated by uh, to a primitive
1: uh, those are uh, all terrific comments, uh, and I- I'm not sure. Uh, in the interest of getting uh, uh, a lot more, uh, no, 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 no. I, uh, I'm in your debt because there are lots of things to think about, and you know, some of these. Ho- hopefully, you and I might be able to uh, continue uh, via email or something like that. Let me just take a, uh, a stab at two of them, uh, just because I think it's incumbent when you give a talk not to just say. Good comments. I'll think about them. Um, <clears throat> on the benign security environment and liberalism, I, I, the first liberal for me is Hobbes. Uh, Alex is gone, so that's good. I could say this. Probably drive him crazy. But the, you know, the political theory tradition I come from regards uh, Hobbes as the, uh, the first uh, liberal political thinker. Hobbes' discussion in Leviathan is quite interesting. For him, the problem of the state of nature uh, is basically internal conflict uh, within the group. And in fact, once the state or the Leviathan is formed, Hobbes actually has a very benign view of international politics. I mean, this is what the, the uh, political theorists uh, always criticize uh, realists for uh, using Hobbes or Hobbes' metaphor, of the state of nature for international politics, is we, we misunderstand that Hobbes' view that once you form the state, international politics is a relatively easy thing, That the uh, the uh, state of nature is uh, uh, mostly individuals in the state of nature and that states are, uh, uh, are a lot stronger. So I guess, I mean, I take, I take your point that, uh, that if I'm going to try to respond to uh, Alex uh, with this uh, threat argument, I'm going to have to look a lot more carefully at it. But at least it seems to me uh, that starting with Hobbes, liberalism has had a far more benign view of international politics uh, than not. And even Hobbes, who most of us interpret as being, uh, you know, as having uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, the most uh, dangerous view, really, you know, when he talks about states rather than individuals, he he ends up thinking that, uh, or coming down, that states live a a pretty easy life. Um, The argument about the uh, self-contradiction, I'm saying, liberals can't uh, tolerate uh, non-liberals uh, ipso facto a non-liberal alternative uh, isn't going to fly uh, I think American liberals can't and maybe British liberals it's not clear to me even you know, if you accept Hartz's argument that all forms of liberalism are equally uh, in, uh, I- impermeable to uh, non-liberal uh, thoughts so I'm not sure that that's a- a- as big of a uh, a uh, uh, self contradiction uh, as it uh, might appear, uh, but uh, you're right. I do need to, to give that some uh, some more thought. Um, the final thing is the uh, organized hypocrisy thing. I mean, all your all your alternative explanations uh, are ones that I have to uh, grapple with. There, I do in the paper talk about what I think would be the Mearsheimer response to my argument, which is you know uh, he had that. Uh, article in the University of Chicago magazine, Liberal rhetoric, rhetoric, Realist Behavior. And I was sort of hoping somebody would raise that one because I you know I think what what I have is the you know the out of the ballpark response to it, which is simply say if it were organized hypocrisy, then why do realists like Waltz and Kennan in the Vietnam period uh, and Walt and Mearsheimer today have so much to carp about in terms of American foreign policy. American foreign policy was really driven uh, so much by the imperatives of realpolitik, there'd be nothing to criticize. But it's precisely the fact uh, that the United States has behaved in uh, uh, a fashion that uh, many realists, for I think good deductive reasons based on how realists view the world, finds to be at variance with that. Uh, so I'm sorry to make you the uh, Mearsheimer strawman, but it's uh, the the law of the instrument. Please, and um, in, in your name, please. Um,
5: I wonder if uh, you're willing to uh, expand and go back further to trace not only American uh, liberalism but also American cultural culture or culture as a whole. Because of Biopathic sentiment seems to be uh, fully supported, largely supported by, by American people after a certain So after COVID, you know, this uh, uh, very uh, popular one book by I think the Marx American uh, addresses some of the very familiar uh, national characteristics of America right. as you described for instance described, uh, he described the so-called sameness in American thinking right these thinks the same way in Europe this was achieved according to Parkway by kings and queens in America by tyranny the of the world right uh, second the perpetuate to war in the most recent uh, report. Uh, yeah, the,
1: the, the global war on terrorism now is a generational struggle. Now, you know, now they tell us.
5: Torquo well discuss the non-stopness of Americans. Uh, you know, he describes why Americans are so young in the, in, in the midst of prosperity. Elsewhere, people need to relax. <coughs> but we never stop at fast food, fast computer change, fast cars. Know, now we're taking the war against terrorism uh, in a non-stop way. This is another uh, kind of uh, the, the, the pursuit of speed, space is almost unlimited. Third, they try to trace the American thinking as what I actually you it, the lack of intellectualism. And he was shocked to you. You see in America education is just the practical. There's no deep philosophical study. Incidentally, <laughs> in 19, uh, 2004, Who are book, also uh, made a, a big uh, argument that the more books you read, the less of... You are know, you have to that. So, right. <laughs> uh, I, well, I don't
1: think he believed that.
5: I, I wouldn't be surprised if this comes from now, from Peter, but this is from a big scholar. And, and I could describe people with education as first-time patriotic, and you don't think that you're not... Uh, yeah. So these are lots of uh, uh, identities, traditional uh, political cultures, rather than your definition as uh,
1: laborism. Yeah. American you're, 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 you're absolutely right that Tocqueville is key. Tocqueville was key for Hartz, uh, and I think Tocqueville is key for this project, not only in terms of America, but also in terms of a comparative. Treatment of liberalism because the the liberalism I haven't said anything about because I don't know much about it is the uh, the French liberalism that uh, that Tocqueville knew intimately and Democracy in America was written uh, primarily in that context of explaining America to uh, uh, to the French. Um, I, I, I had to. Yeah. I'm well, pause elsewhere you, you do have
5: other extrivenists but McCarthy there all the time.
1: Um extremism in the defense I mean, of liberty is no vice.
5: But but America is a society without so called deep culture, like like the French would be French, no matter who is in power, the Russia's in So how do you react? To uh
1: I'm not gonna react. No, no, no. <laughs> Randy, I'm sorry, I should have you you've been in line for a long time.
2: Conservative uh, liberal chart, you have Neil Kahn. I I found very, very difficult to figure out what a conservative or liberal foreign policy is. I can't can't remember God's name, but I like the book, you'll know, the uh, where he has a Jacksonian tradition.
1: Oh, Walter Russell Mead.
2: debates in the U.S. about interventionism, multilateralism, or unilateralism, and that these figures actually capture that sort of, whether we should discuss economic, whether we should stress. And even in the Cold War, you say, well, you know, the U.S. was crusading, and was, uh, was extirpating, but there was a sense, even Gaddis's book, favorite, that there was pluralism, that we were seeking pluralism. We, we made friends with governments that didn't look like us during the Cold War. Right. In other words, what I'm saying is that I don't find this. I find this difficult to make the question is how would you define a conservative foreign policy? I like I like Walter Russell Mead's conceptualization of these various strands and sort of playing them out. So maybe the largest source. Yeah,
1: I I think the uh, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, The the Mead thing is important in two senses. One is that, and and, uh, John may remember this not. This isn't an ageist comment, but just <laughs> a chronological comment. But, you know, Hearts has come in and out of fashion, particularly in political theory. I gave this talk at a uh, political theory colloquium at, in Dallas, and uh, uh, some smart older dude came up to me and said, you know, hearts is, you know, sort of old beans." And I said, well, I, my hearts are 20 years behind the,
2: the power curve. You know, I thought that would get him off my
1: back. Uh, but some younger people then came up to me, younger theorists, and said, well, you know, that old group's not right. That, in fact, uh, among political theorists, uh, there is, in fact, uh, a renaissance of interest uh, in the uh, liberal tradition argument. That's, in fact, a very important uh, uh, theme to it. Now, the, the issue of... Uh, the, the big issue that brought parts down, the, the one that Roger Smith got in on, in that a lot of people re- really resonated with, Argument that except for these crazy southern agrarians uh, at the Civil War time, that there wasn't a real ideological alternative. Uh, and you know, they, they came up with all sorts of uh, uh, plausible candidates. I mean, I think that's fair, but I mean, on the other hand, there's a, a whole lot of uh, empirical work and other historical work that talks about what Arthur Schlesinger referred to as the vital center in American politics. It's been pretty consistent when you look at it, it, it sure looks a lot. Uh, to me, like the uh, the, the liberal tradition. Now, whether it's what's a conservative foreign policy, you know, you're right. I mean, uh, the I only have that up there simply uh, as a contrast, to, you know, to highlight the similarities between uh, liberalism and neoconservatism on, on these sorts of issues. Uh, you're you're absolutely right. A good conservative could look at that and challenge that, uh, depending upon what sort of conservative you are. I guess
2: I'm wondering where Because I tried to do this one, and I couldn't do it. And I, I like the idea liberals are. There's a big difference between Jeffersonian liberal and Wilsonian liberal and Jacksonian sort of populist type. And they're all these different, but I couldn't do a conservative. I, I couldn't. Where did you go to find a conservative? Huntington's uh, I mean, uh, conservatism is an ideology. You ever read that? No. It, as an ideology as a foreign policy. Yeah, well, the,
1: the, yeah, the, there is a discussion uh, of uh, foreign policy uh, in it. It's primarily a political theory thing, um, and uh, a very abstruse uh, and also like Hartz. I mean, you know, I, I've known Huntington for, uh, you know, 15 years, and, and I've always been aware that Hartz was a big deal in his thinking. Uh, and I tried to read the when, you know when I was a Dunkoff in graduate school and couldn't do it. Um, and uh, I have to say, uh, I tried again uh, you know, in the 90s and couldn't, couldn't do it. But th- this time, after reading that, uh, that particular Huntington piece uh, and reading Hearts, and then going back and looking at the soldier of the state and American politics, the promise of disharmony, I understood where he was coming from. So whether he's right or not, of course, is another matter. But hearts really turns out to be central uh, to uh, a lot of those arguments. Now, during the Cold War, uh, and, and this would, you know, if, if Alex were here, this would be yet another response. Uh, I, I don't think, I think personally, uh, the Cold War imposed certain structural constraints on the liberal tradition in the United States. That, you know, it was no accident, Comrade, that the key manifestations of the liberal tradition were domestic uh, politics, uh, McCarthyism, and then as Robert Pakenham documents in his superb book, uh, Liberal America and the Third World, in our economic development strategy, primarily in Latin America, and that realism, you know, sort of dominated the high politics of that and, and my argument is that the reason you know we saw the liberal tradition come back to the vengeance in the nineteen nineties was, you know, in part of the end of the Cold War. You know, 9/11 is sort of
7: Please. Um, I had a chance to read your paper and enjoyed your, your talk very much. And I'm, I'm certainly
1: sympathetic to the argument that there's a lot of continuity. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Your, your name is? Oh, okay.
7: I'm sorry. Uh, George Haring's. historian's uh, perspective. Uh, I heard a fellow diplomatic historian give a talk at a conference last uh, summer. other historians have as well. But what,
0: what I found less
7: persuasive about your talk is you begin with a puzzle that you're seeking to explain, and that puzzle is one that underscores change over time. You want to know why American liberalism is becoming increasingly illiberal, and your examples of that are all examples that I would call tactical shifts. The decision to invade Iraq. The decision to use torture more freely, the decision to uh, curtail civil liberties. But when you make your, your argument for broad continuity, you focus not on tactics, but on ends. Now, I could say to you, as I often say to students, if you look at ends throughout 20th century American foreign policy, if you think broadly enough, they're all the same. All American leaders want a world that's more stable, more peaceful, more peaceful. Borderly, more predictable, the world characterized by democratic processes and free trade. That's Wilson, that's Clinton, that's Bush. That's everybody. But if you're focusing on these broad continuities, how does that get you to an explanation of, of the, the, what many perceive as a shift in American policy under Bush? Unlike you, I guess, I believe that Clinton or Gore would A, not have invaded Iraq not have gone so freely towards torture and the use of Guantanamo Bay and would not have restricted civil liberty. And my evidence for that is the very partisan debate on all of those issues right now. Your continuity framework, it seems, to me, is hard-pressed to explain the very sharp differences that divide people.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, Excellent comments. Uh, The the big philosophical issue is one uh, or not philosophical, but methodological issue is one that I've wrestled with because I've heard it before. I, the liberal tradition is a constant, you're saying, but uh, you're, you can't use a constant to explain variation. Uh, and that's why I argue uh, in the paper, and I'm going to, you know, in whatever I do further with this, expand upon it. That it's the liberal tradition plus other things. Uh, in my response to Randy, it's the uh, the change in the uh, the strategic context that I think uh, plays a big role in. Whether and how the liberal tradition manifests itself, I don't think during the Cold War the liberal tradition manifested itself as much across the board uh, as it, uh, you know, has since the end of the Cold War. And for me, the key variable there is the Soviet threat. There's no way we could pursue these objectives uh, when the cost of going to war with the adversary was mutual annihilation. So you're right. That's a that, that's an issue that I, I've got to spell out more. More clearly in In the in uh, your
7: framework, you lump Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan together, and that reminds me of a book that Tony Smith wrote some years ago that you might know, America's Mission. And I think he was taken to task for doing too much one thing and getting to the point where Ronald Reagan becomes indistinguishable from uh, Jimmy Carter and John F. Kennedy. Take the issue of human rights. I mean, that's squarely in the liberal tradition, isn't it? But you want Reagan and Carter to be liberals. Carter pushed for a human rights tradition, and Reagan tried to bury it. That's got to be explained. That's in the context of the Cold War as well. You I know, mean, I think the danger with too much bombing is that you lose the nuance that you need to explain
1: difference. I'm being too much of a political scientist. I've heard, I've heard these uh, uh, these sort of critiques <coughs> from uh, uh, diplomatic uh, or historian colleagues. I mean, I think it's a it, it's a fair point. Uh, I think the difference between Carter and Reagan is, uh, uh, again, uh, more tactical than uh, strategic in many important senses. But you do see, you know, I mean, Carter came out of the Descartes period. Reagan won was the reinvigoration of the Cold War. Reagan got pretty bullshit, not bullshit, but he got pretty enthusiastic about democratization uh, uh, after 1986. And in fact, uh, one of the key things was the, uh, the activities of his ambassador, Harry Barnes, to Chile who played a key role in the uh, final, you know, sort of cleaning up the mess of military dictatorships in, uh, uh, in Latin America. He did it with, uh, with Reagan's uh, blessing. Now, but your, your basic point is right. I've got to think through the, uh, uh, the uh, continuity or the, the, the constant versus the variation thing Uh, to people's satisfaction uh, better than I have. Now, the issue uh, on uh, uh, Clinton and uh, Kerry and the sharp debate, here I think we've got to just agree to disagree. Part of it is it's counterfactual history. um, And, you know, that's a useful exercise, but uh, can only take it so far. I I would just simply say uh, that... If we've seen a sharp debate about any aspect of the Bush administration's foreign policy uh, from any member of the Democratic Party that holds political office, I haven't heard it. What is John, uh, John Kerry's uh, critique uh, of the Bush administration? What is Joe Biden's critique? Uh, and, and I have a quote in the paper where I said, this, you know, his critique, which they, you know, they're implicated by their, uh, uh, you know, they were tripping all over each other to vote for the authorization for the use of force. And their critique comes down to he went to war unilaterally, without allies, too quick. Where's somebody who said, aside from Howard Dean, who uh, I don't believe the head of the DNC is an elected political office in the Democratic Party, uh, that has said uh, that this was a mistake, uh, that we blew There's been no sharp debate on this issue. It's been, there's been sharp debates uh, among some people, in the uh, you know the faculty uh, uh, the faculty clubs on university campuses, but the silence more generally is stunning. And the supine nature of the media in this country in the run-up to war, especially people like Bob Woodward, who in another era played a key role in exposing uh, the uh, perfidy of a uh, of an incumbent president. We compare Woodward of the two books on Bush basically stenographer to the uh, uh, to the imperial court with the Bush of, or I mean with the Woodward uh, of uh, the Watergate period. And that's been, as Michael Massing and other people have pointed out, it's been unbelievable. So yeah, I mean, you and I both know people that you know were, uh, we're up in arms about various aspects of these things early on. You can always point to a few people, but what's stunning is... Uh, that it's only been a few people, and then a lot of people who in other contexts uh, were, would have been uh, you know, quite opposed to what's going on hopped on board. That's point. I'm sorry if I've gone on ad nauseum. I've got to, to understand my I'd love
0: to say, I'd love to see a study of uh, neoconservative uh, actual advocacy for which position. I remember fighting hard in 1989 against Daniel Pipes, who many would consider a neoconservative. Because he was very pro Saddam Hussein, he wrote an article in the, in the New York Times arguing why we should tilt towards uh, Iraq and Saddam. As, As did, Lord, did Lori Milroy. Yeah. And you know, I would love to see a more a more fulsome discussion of this liberalism uh, coming from the neo- conservative. or I guess I'm really ending the talk by saying I, I think there's a lot to be explained that John and Tim were sort of pushing you on. And I think we all need to think about uh, in terms of examining again a uh, behavioral choice as opposed to rhetorical um, trappings. I just don't know how to get at that. I can't that. believe I've
1: come here to the but center of constructivism <laughs> in my heart, and I'm being told rhetoric is <laughs> irrelevant. There's are still us <laughs> here who are realists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: There are four of us <laughs> who are still realists, and maybe five. <laughs> <laughs>
3: but it has been great to have you back. Thank great. you so much. Thank you. Much so much. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank, thank